0: Listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Our guest today is Pedelin Albert. Like so many of our guests on The Authenticity Show, Pedelin is kind of amazing. She's a certified divorce coach and a certified hypnosis therapist. Uh, And beyond that, she's just really fun to talk to. We were glad that she came down from her home in Northern California to hang out with us. In this first segment, she talks about her idea of a heart-fueled giant, which is fascinating. Uh, She also discusses her work as a divorce coach and grief counselor. And there's a cool conversation about creativity and flow states. So yeah, good times. Good evening, Satch Purcell.
1: Good evening, Carlos Casados. My dear friend, uh, you know what? Uh, I'm so glad that you're you're here tonight because I've had a couple of uh, solo missions for the Authenticity Show, and I miss not having you
2: there. Yeah, I know. Solo missions are good from time to time, but you know what they say distance makes the heart grow fonder. That's so, true. So here we are. Uh, I miss your
1: presence. I'm glad glad we're doing this together. Yeah. Because uh, there's a very special person who came tonight, who's special in many different ways. Uh, she's a friend of mine, dear to me, dear to my heart. She's a soul sister uh, on a on a parallel path to awesomeness and inspiring people. I'm um, really glad that she agreed to come down from her uh, castle in Northern California, the Bay Area, to come be with us. Uh, welcome, Petalyn.
3: Hi, Carlos and Satch. I am so happy to be here, honored to be here. Thank you. Mm.
2: You know, I knew this was going to be awesome the second I saw her shirt. <laughs> that is a super cool, interesting s- skull, psychedelic shirt. It's amazing. Right? Piqued my interest.
3: Yeah. New Orleans. It was just there. Nolo. Yeah. Mm. Nolo. Absolutely. My second time there. And uh, I really enjoyed it.
1: Very was nice. it a, a a fun trip? Like, it or was, was it more fun of a work trip. trip or both?
3: No, not at all. I was I was there to celebrate a dear friend's fiftieth birthday with her. Oh, very cool. Yeah, so we sort of we did. I the know works. that friend you're referring to. You do, yeah. Excellent. Yep. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Cool. <laughs>
1: I just thought it, was, it just happened to be that you combined a little pleasure with business or something.
3: No, no, but that's what I tell the tax people.
1: Nice, nice. Did I say that mm-hmm. out loud? <laughs> well, you're just joking. So. I am. The absolutely. uncle named Sam will uh, <laughs> we'll get the story. But um, Just kidding. I, I want to kind of get into s- just kind of start off with um, the whole term heart-fueled giant. <sighs> because I like that. And it's, it's an interesting phrase. Tell us about that. What is that?
3: When I think of people, when I think of the people that I work with, when I think of my friends, when I think of my family, i I think of them in terms of, um, you know, there's there is that bigness, that that giant, that um, that larger-than-life part of us that wants to come out, right? and um, and it can be dangerous. Mm. you know So tempering it with heart. Is uh, it w- is important not just um, for for my work, but also for my approach for me. So, Heart Fuel Giants is um, it's a call mm-hmm. for myself, um, as well as a reminder, um, a call for others who might be attracted to that combination that you know that desire to be big, that desire to come out of their shell um, and to um, to walk a larger path in some way. I
1: that's really, really, really cool. Mm. What What is the the context under which people usually find out about that?
3: Uh, they're going through a divorce. Okay. Or they're going through some sort of change in mm-hmm. their life they're, that they're not sure what what's coming next and they want to prepare. They want to have – they don't want to waste any more time trying to figure out uh, – they don't have 20 more years to figure it out, you know, to find themselves.
1: Uh, is this something that um, – applies equally to males and females absolutely
3: yeah absolutely yeah yeah actually the giant part if if i may um i i had a a reoccurring dream when i was six years old about (laughs) we love dreams i Mm -hmm. know aren't they amazing Mm. i still haven't quite figured this out but he haunts me still and he was this incredible giant beautiful hairless sort of silvery skin and I got the impression that he was sentenced to stand near this cliff, tall cliff, with all these cars going, you know, by his feet, and and he was sentenced there, like, um, to hold that cliff up to protect those people. But whoever sentenced him took the, his strength, hmm. so every moment was an agony for him to do the job of protecting those beneath. You know, kind of like, uh, um, what's his name? The the one who had the Prometheus. Is okay. it Prometheus? Yeah, who stole the fire from Who stole the fire, that's right, and had his, his liver, liver taken out every single day, every day you know. It it so as a punishment. Right. right, as a punishment. Kind of, it yeah. sort of has that that feel to it.
1: Served it with onions.
3: Mm. <laughs> that's right. Fried <laughs> in the pan. Beans. Yeah, father beans.
4: <laughs> sure. <laughs> brains, <Right>. brains, brains, brains. <laughs> yeah. clarified butter. Mm-hmm.
3: So there's something about that, you know, um, releasing the giant within and, and trying not to, to, to go toward that too much. But uh, but that's my personal giant and he's my giant. He's nobody else's giant. So mm. I claim the giant. Wow. That's interesting. <laughs> um, I
1: think that's really cool as a metaphor because you're talking about something beyond yourself that you created because it's actually not beyond yourself because you created it. right? You you imagine this thing. But in a way, you're imagining something that's beyond the constraints of your situation which is this giant that could have this massive impact
4: right.
1: uh, more than you could. But in reality, it's really you. So that's an interesting little loop to play because mm. it's not you, but it is you.
3: Yeah, it's um, it's difficult to live up to a giant, you know. It gives you something um, to shoot but for. But it gives me something to shoot for. <laughs> and you can't really
1: miss Hello? it. It's a, as big as a barn. So
2: you don't have to have a good aim. <laughs> right, right, right. That's right. <laughs> you run into it anyway. <laughs> One of the things that that sometimes we we talk about and that we've we've pulled from other other places is that um, is, is to look at your dream like a painting mm. and interpret it like a painting.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, would if you painted a picture of your dream about the giant, uh, what would it be called? I mean, would it be called Heart Fuel Giant, or what do you think?
3: It could very well be called Heart Fuel Giant because um, because it was very important that the, to him that he do what that he protect that he actually fulfill what he was there for um and the the suffering and the agony that he was experiencing was because he so wanted to be able to do that but every moment would took everything that he had and so you know when you imagine putting everything that you have every single effort that you have and to the point of exhaustion to that tipping point on the other side where you can't continue any longer but to have that be an eternity um that's the kind of you know uh yeah that's a powerful image
4: it it really is
3: you know and I, i had this dream over and over again and so it that's why it stuck with me and um and and my heart goes out to that to that giant you know and and why was he punished and yeah. You know, and uh, how can I release him, you know, in a sense?
1: It also means you have the potential to be a hero. And I hear that when you say heart-fueled giant, I hear hero.
3: Well, exactly. And that's why um, I called him out in that name, because mm-hmm. um, when I'm working with, with people who are, you know, going through a divorce or thinking about it, I mean, they're, they're typically at this place of, of agony, Emotional agony. Uh They they don't know what to do. Um, It's it's too big of a of a topic. They don't do it every day. Mm -hmm. This is their time to do this. And oh my gosh, how do I do this? So, you know. um, And I really believe that how you approach your divorce um, sets you up for how for for how you live your life after. Mm -hmm. Um, I think of it like molten lava. You know, if you are. Approaching and going through your divorce, you're in that molten state. Everything is rendered. Everything is up for grabs. Everything is just, you know, you just don't know which end is up half the time. You're in that emotional liquid state, you Mm -hmm. know. Um, But as you go through it, um, you begin to take form and take shape. So, um, and by the end of it, you're sort of firm. Right. And so I really do believe that how you go through it will set you up for what comes after, it will set your patterns, set new patterns of behavior and patterns of thinking and an and approach to your life. Um so that's so yeah, so that's that heart fueled aspect yeah. of that. That makes so know. much
1: sense because uh, when you make the decision to commit to someone for life, AKA or marriage, whether or not you actually did stay in that marriage or not, it's a big turning point in your life and it's a big initiation. So if mm-hmm. you then have to go through another type of an uncomfortable initiation called a divorce,
4: mm-hmm.
1: it is a snapshot of you and the universe, your agreement with the universe, your agreement with what is mm-hmm. has now changed and you've got to address that in a real direct way. So it is a um, maybe a litmus test or something. It, it tells you a lot about what your uh, philosophical position is. With life,
3: and we have influence at that time. I mean, yeah. I
1: refer to it as a rite of
3: passage. Uh-huh. Um, it's a there rite of passage, go. like yeah. like you know, going to prom is only more more you know serious. Except maybe prom is just as serious to somebody going through that, but <laughs> I don't know. Um, but um, but just as uh, much of any any rite of passage, probably more important um, because um, so much changes in our life, and um, and everything that is to come really um hinges on the behaviors that we develop when we are rendered at our worst. Mm. you know. So it's so I, I do coach my clients that it is a rite of passage and I want them to look at it that
1: way. Wow. You know, I was just thinking as we were having this conversation that we kind of just jumped into we the did. deep end of the pool.
2: <laughs> but but that's because, what we do. Because, yeah, that's true. That's we do. Yeah. And and I have questions like <laughs> Pipelin, um, could you uh, just briefly describe? At what capacity do you work with with these people? Like, for example, if, if I'm just a listener, I'm thinking: is she a therapist or a divorce lawyer? Yeah, let's contextualize you know. <laughs> this a little bit. Right. And I don't right. think for all you're of a divorce our lawyer. Sakes. Yeah. Yeah.
3: No, no, I'm not a divorce lawyer, um, but I play one on TV. No. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> um, Love but um, no, I am a coach, and okay. um, and I work with a very special group of people that I can refer my clients to if they need a therapist. I have a thera- several therapists on my rolodex to send them to, and um, attorneys and so on. Um, so, but what I find the reason, and it's interesting because. Um, the general public, first off, they don't typically, they're not typically aware that there is such a thing as a divorce coach. I happen to be a certified divorce coach. Mm. But, um, and they're not aware that there are many other ways of approaching divorce um, to set them up for as smooth a process as it can possibly be. Um, and it really, they don't realize how much of it depends on, on them, on they themselves how they approach it yeah um and that influences their negotiations it influences um um how they heal through the process it influences how they how they struggle Mm -hmm. it influences everything and um so yeah so that's that's when they come to me they come to me because they want to do it right
1: yeah and as an nlp guy and a constant punster um, I can't help but be drawn to the sort of strange irony of the phrase "divorce coach." You know, it's 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 a bit like an alcoholic counselor or mm-hmm. something like that. You know, it's like just putting a little humor in there, but it's kind of like you don't automatically think that you're going to need a divorce coach, mm-hmm. and not that you're coaching people to get divorced. <laughs> no, but, and that is important. Yeah.
3: Um, I've had people actually decide not to get divorced, and uh, my 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 personal belief is that. Why go through a divorce you have, you know if you don't have to you you know you have partnership with this person you have history with this yeah. person, why throw it away but if you're going to then um let's do it with dignity
2: mm-hmm. you know yeah, it's smart because yeah. you win either way if you're an epic exactly. failure, they stay together right <laughs> that's perfect yeah <laughs> right it's totally. beautiful that's great yeah. oh. well, you know you can it's win just... for losing
3: yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I believe in the struggle. Um, it was grief that actually got me into the work that I do. Um, mm. Because I I had this thought. I lost somebody that was very important to me. Actually, mm. can I just tell you? It was my cat.
2: Okay.
3: I loved my cat mm. very much. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but, I've um, lost some beautiful
2: ones too. So Yeah, yeah and yeah.
3: I've, I've lost um, some other, some people as well. But um, it's occurred to me by the time I lost this cat that, we're all getting older. Grief isn't something that'll just come along once mm-hmm. or twice. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, we're going to experience it more and more often, more frequently as we get older. Why haven't we learned to do this better yet? And, um, and that's when I became really interested in how to repurpose grief, in a sense. Nice. You know, to go through it, to honor it, and so on. But to actually use it as fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, for something that, that we can build on to make us stronger so that we can handle what is to come, in a, you know. So that's my crazy theory, and so that's kind of what got me into it. Um, and then having gone through my own divorce um, about three years ago, um, I sort of applied, I always apply it. I apply those principles to every every dip, you know, yeah. every struggle situation and we, we struggle all the time mm-hmm. struggle isn't bad it's just something we have to do human beings actually become stronger and become more fortified under under struggle we're we're built right. to struggle right you know we're built to struggle successfully in ideally right um so um i think as a culture we tend to veer away from the idea of struggle and um and i really want to sort of do my part to show it as a resource which is one of the reasons I got involved with the whole flow genome project and so on, because right. that's really, that's really what they're about is understanding the principles of flow and the struggle being part of that.
1: Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's really inspiring. Um, you know, native cultures seem to have an easier time with the basics like grief um, for whatever reason, you know, they, they haven't lost touch with the rites of passage and the simplicity of Um, day-to-day existence you know um but even more developed countries that have a strong kind of relatively unbroken tradition have that too like when we talk about uh in italy and greece where they women throw themselves on top of the coffins and weep you know and scream and and wail and and all these things and there there are these traditions that are part of it and I kind of like that there are these almost ritualistic places where you can concentrate really intense emotion and focus it in a in a real shaped way you know that whatever is the shape of the circumstance but I think a lot of what we suffer from today is a lack of being able to deal with what you're talking about healing just the dealing directly with the issue it's like we even when it comes to death people is he passing away, passing on, going to a better place? We can't just say they died. It's uncomfortable to say he died. You know why is that? It
3: Reminds us of our own mortality, and we are very um, averse to that here in mm. the U.S. Right, I, I, in my opinion. Which reminds me of New Orleans, right? Which mm, with is, skulls on your shirt? I yeah. was. It occurred to me when I was there that um, these people are obsessed with death. Yeah, you know, um, and I sort of meant it in a joking way. But you look around everywhere, and you know, uh, so in San Francisco we have these uh, these hearts, mm-hmm. these big heart sculptures that uh, that you see every every now and then, just on a corner or somewhere. They're huge, um, and I don't know if you have anything like that in in Southern California. But um, but in New Orleans, you have the equivalents of that, and they're coffins.
1: We we have no heart here. (laughs)
4: You have no heart. Yeah, that's right. It's Southern Southern California, California. and we shun death. So yeah, yeah.
1: Well, you know, as I was saying, so so we kind of jumped into the deep end of the pool. Um, but that is also something that I like about our show is that we don't really... We, we come in without necessarily knowing what we're going to say as we begin. So as the listener um, probably realizes, there's a randomness to the way our episodes start. And what we're looking for, because you mentioned the Flow Genome Project, we're looking for a flow of conversation. So sometimes we just might blurt something out and then kind of go with it it might seem a little disconnected like it's coming out in left field or something certainly not planned yeah non-sequiturs things like that but then we zero in on this zone this kind of conversational zone that that is a mutually held awareness that we're storming heaven together we're exploring ideas we're getting to know each other and feeling inspired to share and i like that um it interests me i i'm very fascinated with how that works because we have no idea where this is going to really go we just know that it's going to be focused around what you do and what's inside of you and hoping to bring that out but that's the exciting thing about the show that we love is is that we get to have this seemingly random exploration and see how it blossoms into something
3: hmm. yeah and that's part of the struggle right um there may be dead air here and there. We may mess up our words here and mm. there. We may not quite know where we're going. Um, and then something will release that tension and, uh, and then we'll be in flow.
1: Unleash the Kraken.
3: Unleash the Kraken. That's Speaking right. of Greek mythology <laughs> and
1: Prometheus. So Flow Genome Project.
3: Mm-hmm. It's not mine. Um, so I just want to make that clear. Um, that is the brainchild of Jamie Wheel and Stephen Kotler, both of who wrote Stealing Fire.
1: Promethean reference there.
3: Promethean reference there, very much so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, <coughs> yeah, so, you know, their work is, takes Csikszentmihalyi's study of flow and creativity.
1: Nice job on the pronunciation, by the way.
3: Yeah. Well, that's how <laughs> you, <laughs> you, can't spell it, but you know right. how to pronounce it, Csikszentmihalyi that chick sent me high. Yeah. (laughs) You know, or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Good job. So, (laughs)
1: um, And he's the the one who wrote the book Flow.
3: He wrote Flow Mm -hmm. and the creativity of flow or creativity or something. Um, He wrote many, many books. Um, Quite an amazing dude. I would suggest anybody looking him up. And uh, he came up with the graph where there's on one side, there's the skill level. And then on the y-axis, there's the um, challenge level. And between those two axes there is the stream where you have a beautiful ratio between skill and challenge Mm. and that is where you're not bored and it's not a straight line either because we're constantly moving between our capacity to do what we're doing and our challenge around it Mm -hmm. right so there is this stream so for instance however if you if you're if you are extremely skilled and the challenge is low you're bored so you won't you won't continue to do what you're doing right however if the challenge is too high is very high and your skill level doesn't can't really you can't approach you you really can't participate in 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 whatever that challenge is then you disengage you just won't continue so the idea is to stay in that middle stream between the two axes now with um what Jamie and um, and Stephen came up with was um, building on that um, th- that flow is actually a cycle. It's not a single state. So you know when you're in that 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 state of timelessness and you lose a sense of where you are, you lose a sense of yourself. Um, we we enter a stage of struggle. So we're really we're we're in that beta that beta brain wave. You know, state. Um, and we get to a place where we're just we just we just can't do anything anymore. We, we're We're studying something, we're on a project, you know we're we're struggling to figure out something in the project. and we get to a place where we just simply need to take a break. So that's called the release phase. And what the release phase does is it takes us out of be- out of that beta and takes us into more of an alpha state alpha alpha theta so you walk outside you you know you get into your body you do some stretches you do whatever just to kind of release that tension of that mm-hmm. beta phase right and you're in the release phase and then once you once you release and you go back to it you're in a different state and that's when flow can come in so and then after flow after the flow stage you can't keep that up that timelessness senseless you know um, selflessness effortlessness Uh, it takes tremendous energy even though it's a creative flowing state so you do that and, and the trick they say is to is to stop when you're still in that high flow state so you can actually go back to it stop and recover so you know one of the things they teach is to struggle more gracefully and recover more deeply those are the two things that you want to really focus on flow you want to forget about flow
1: so say that again struggle more gracefully and what was the second part recover more deeply recover more deeply so Mm -hmm. if i'm hearing what you're saying once you get a sense of that sweet spot that zone you want to stop before it goes to completion
3: exactly Exactly. So catch
1: yourself doing this well. Don't spend it all. Don't don't blow your chops. Right. 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 Do it, and stop prior to when you feel like you've spent exactly. All it. And then uh, refocus yourself on a recovering activity. Yes. And could that include things like, of course, like meditation? It could. Uh, yoga. Disengaging. Um, walk in nature. Sleeping, a bath, maybe.
3: A bath. That's more of a release thing. Okay. But sleeping completely disengages, resting the brain.
1: So you're ideally taking your attention and taking it completely off that, not even thinking about You're the fact, done. Because that's a tough thing, right, Satch? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. when we hit flow states in Tai Chi, mm-hmm. martial arts and music and different things, it's easy to get caught up in the fact that you did it. Yeah. Your ego goes, wow, I did it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Oh my gosh.
2: That's why our... And our, that's what you're saying not to do, <laughs> right? Yeah. And that makes sense because that's like we're our, our Tai Chi teacher... Um, Maybe you were practicing a uh, 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 taking a particular type of push, and it's really difficult, really difficult, and suddenly you do it right. Mm-hmm. And then he'll say, okay, that's enough. Yeah, that's enough. Stop. He says, because yeah. then you, you're going to try to memorize the movement you made, and it's not about a movement. Right. So, yeah. And he'll just make you, just, just stop. Forget it. Don't do it anymore.
1: Yeah. Right. And it, it's a little counterintuitive for someone who hasn't become good at that, because yeah. you think, well, don't I want more of that? Yeah. Well, it, yeah. it,
3: it, the idea is it keeps, it also, it tells the brain, it leaves you on a high so the body wants to go back to it, right? Mm-hmm. That's why you don't want to stop. So if it's something that you want to continue to practice, you don't want to take, you don't want to practice until you fail again and leave yourself on a low.
2: Yeah, yeah. Right?
3: And you when mm-hmm. you understand Good that point. with yeah. New, yeah. 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 You know,
2: it reminds me of when you're a kid. And you're playing, and you're having a great time, and your parents make you stop and come in. All you want to do is go back out and play again. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 very clever. That's a clever technique. It is. There are so many parallels for that. Mm -hmm. I was also going to say that, um, as you were describing that, I sort of realized in myself, oh my god, that's practice rather than performance. Yeah, you know, this idea that just earlier today, funny enough, I was thinking about this. Um, We love to practice and then a performance comes and then it's it's all too often that people mess up during their performance that's a common common occurrence and then we go back to practicing and we love to practice but why can't when we're performing we're just pr- we're just practicing getting better at performing. Mm-hmm. Like, Okay, I'm gonna go perform right now, so I'm gonna go practice performing. Yeah. Right. And so what you're describing about getting into a flow state and then and then ending it a little soon, mm-hmm. sort of makes me feel like I want to go practice again. And it's always practice. It's always practice. That's kind of neat. Mm-hmm. I
3: read actually exactly what you're talking about. Someone I, we're talking about the about Olympians. They practice, practice, practice so that their performance is merely a practice. Yeah. That's exactly what yeah. what yeah, they were saying. Yeah, that makes sense. makes sense. So yeah. that they don't choke. It's not a performance. It's not. It's not the day. It is just another practice. Yeah. So
1: this is taking what we were discussing about confidence to another level because uh, in a, in previous episodes we've talked about uh, what one of my teachers uh, James Brown uh, pointed out to me that whole idea of confidence yeah. not being. You know, having anything to do with real, you know, competence, confidence and competence, confidence and competence not related to one another. And that when you're practicing doing whatever your art is or your performance, entertainment, magic, uh, music, uh, martial arts, anything like that. uh, If you go out there with the idea that you're getting curious and you're playing and you're uh, even looking at the mistakes that you're doing as a learning then you don't freak out when you make the mistake. You don't break your flow. You just keep going because if you truly have that attitude that you're just going to explore, you don't care whether you do it right or not. You're just wanting to learn. So your curiosity trumps any feelings of insecurity, any feelings of having to do good or do well. Um, And the curiosity maintained like that causes you to learn at an incredibly quick, rapid rate.
3: Yeah, I, I read the etymology of confidence is um comes down to self trust. And to to speaking to what you were saying, um when we think of ourselves as both lab technician and guinea pig mm-hmm. in our own laboratory then that we it, it frees us to be completely curious. It mm-hmm. frees us to to be the experimenter and the experimentee. And so failure, so-called failure, is really um, an opportunity to learn something we didn't know before. And it's nothing's failure. It's information, right? right? And that that directly feeds our self-trust. Just being able to hold a space of. I'm gonna see what happens. I have no idea what will happen, but let's just go for it. I mean, that takes tremendous self trust—not in the comp, in your competence, but in your capacity to to move through that experience.
1: It's faith, Mm. which reminds me when you said that. um, Yeah, I studied some Latin in high school, and I have no idea if this is correct or not. But when I hear it, and when you mentioned that, it made me think "fidelis," which means you know, as in "semper fidelis," right? Always faithful. So "fide." Um, faith, yeah. um, and con being with, so with faith, exactly. it makes sense. I have no idea if that's academically correct, but it's just my brain pick, picking apart the word.
3: Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. and if that is the Latin. I think confidre is the Greek. Okay, there you so go. There you go.
1: Yeah. You know. I'm usually They right say about tomato, like one that. says tomato. So <laughs> <laughs> we're just, again, speaking two different languages. Yes. Of course. It's all Greek to me. It's all Latin to me. <laughs> <laughs> what are we standing around talking Chinese history for? Let's right. get going. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, really. <laughs>
0: listening to The Authenticity Show with your hosts, Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Up next, Carlos and Satch continue their conversation with Petal and Albert. It turns out she's lived in a lot of places all over the world, which is really interesting. And they also get into her work as an NLP practitioner, specifically in working through and transforming fear. Stay tuned.
2: I saw you and Carlos admiring or at least analyzing the map that's on my living room oh, wall. yes. Yeah, yeah huge the world. map. The world yeah. is on your wall. So, uh, I don't know, are there any special places on there for you?
3: Um, well, yes. Um, I lived in Grenada, Trinidad, and Barbados. I was born in Vermont. Lived in South America and Venezuela as well. Lived in England, Ireland, and Scotland
2: so you have lived in a heck of a lot of places
3: it doesn't seem like that many but yeah Uh yeah um the first 20 years of my life was spent abroad um so yeah i was born in vermont i was there for about five months and um and then we traveled a bit throughout the states until i was three and then we left the u.s and didn't come back until i was 20.
2: wow so this is with your parents yeah Mm -hmm. and okay wow wow so did they have some particular reason why they, they went all over the world, or just, just they wanted to?
3: They intended. Their, I, I'm convinced that their intent was to totally confuse and screw up my schooling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, yeah. Uh, and, um, and let me see the world instead. Uh-huh. So, no. Um, my dad was an oil, and um, it, because of the nature of what he did, he could Slippery live anywhere. Guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and... Um, So what's that? Slippery slippery guy. guy. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I got that one. I went back to it. (laughs) Said he was an oil. (laughs) That's right. He was an oily dude. No, he was actually a very nice man. Um, Yeah. So that's what we did. Mm, My mom was a was a designer, actually a clothes designer, a very successful one. And um, she could also do that where she wherever she wanted. So
2: do
1: you think you inherited some of her sense of style?
3: Because um, you're very stylish yourself. Thank you. I yeah. inherited a lot of talent. I came from um, a very gifted, um, both lots of lots of talent on both sides of my family. Yeah, neat. Mother and father. Yeah,
1: that's cool. And uh, your mother is now a, a nun. My mom she? is now She's a, a Catholic nun. nun. That's
3: right. Yeah. God bless my mom. I love her. She's so amazing. You know, I so admire her. She um, she always wanted to be a nun. When she left school, that was what she wanted to do. But um, she became disillusioned with the church. Um, My mom happens to be um, an illegitimate child. Um, And she learned um, that because of that, um, she would never be able to be a full nun. So um, that broke her heart, and uh, she became very disappointed, and she sort of, you know... uh, And in her attitude, gave the finger to the church and uh, went looking for God in all the other places, Buddhism, Sufism, um, Hinduism, all of that. And so that's how I grew up. I grew up with a plethora of all of these different books and different religions around the house. And and I really enjoyed that. But my mom, um, so she married three times, um, divorced three times. And I guess after the third time, and actually, the third one, she married twice and divorced him twice. And I guess after that, she just said, you know, I'm going back to the only dude that won't uh... screw <laughs> <That's crazy>. scream <laughs> <laughs> Married to the church. Married yeah, to <laughs> the church.
2: The silent, distant so, right? type. Right, yeah. yeah.
3: No, but that yeah. was always what she wanted to do. And I, I joke, but, um, but I am so proud of her. And she is truly living the life that she ha- should always have done. Um, this is her walk. This is what she's always wanted to do with her life—to be a, a, a contemplative, mm-hmm. and so she spends her life in prayer. Um, yeah. And on my father's side, there are some um, very, very spiritual people as well—Buddhists and so on. I mean, they—they take—they take that—that they take that is their walk. That is their way of life. So, yeah, get that on both sides.
1: Yeah.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: So, what was it like growing up as a pedalin? As a people, In land, places, you know, God, yes. there was
3: no precedent. I think that was the hardest thing. Huh. Yeah, I used to pray at night that I would have an older brother. I hadn't quite figured out that that probably wouldn't work out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Did you have help. some some like inspirations and heroes when you were uh, younger?
3: Actually, yes. Um, all my PE teachers, all my uh, my my coaches, I really, really, um, I loved and admired um sports was my thing that was that was what i did in school which sports track and field okay yeah in in high school it was track and field and then i went into the martial arts when i was older and then bodybuilding after that
1: cool what martial arts
3: uh shotokan nice yeah but how um, long did you do that about three before? years not very long uh-huh. but it was at a pivotal time in my life um my parents were divorced and i looked up to my senses actually mm-hmm. they really provided a sense of um continuation of the honor of the knights of the round table which of course i grew up with british history so i wanted to be a knight i didn't want to be a damsel i wanted to be i wanted to ride the horses and joust and you know stand for something honorable
1: brienne of tarth yeah that's what i was just (laughs) thinking yeah
4: yeah
3: yeah. so so my he's provided that as well you know that through the martial arts that sense of honor that sense of um um you know, the empty handed way, um, uh, protecting, uh, not looking for a fight, you know, fighting uh, as a very last resort, but sort of, you know, walking quietly and carrying a big stick, as mm, it were, you know. Nice. Um, I really, I really, I really enjoyed that. And of course, I I grew up in the era of um, Kung Fu, the TV series. Debbie with Carradine. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Our, our, so, our favorite too. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I actually, I don't know if I should say that, I actually, um, I, I I wanted you know in the beginning yeah. how he, he you want to get he, the, uh, he the, the dragon it. and the dragon <laughs> tattoo yeah. so on your arms. So I didn't want that, but I wanted I I was something. intrigued by um, being able to handle pain. Yeah, right. And so I I tried that. I actually branded myself. You can still see it. it's like a T, which is uh, it's something in I Ching, which I looked up. Mm-hmm. Um, can you still see it? Yeah, you can just barely see it anymore but it was my test to see if i could translate the pain into something else um coolness you know mm-hmm. and and i i i was able to sort of achieve that i've never repeated the experiment since but but um but yeah
2: mm-hmm. that, that reminds me of the scene in beverly hills ninja mm-hmm. where chris farley's character tries to burn his hands oh, and he sticks right. up but then he ends up it hurts when so he <laughs> spills the hot water on all the on all the other students all, all the other all the other ninjas that were yeah. there yeah
3: yeah, yeah. Was, oh my gosh that was, yeah that's cool. good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah but you know you, you do things to test yourself when you're when you're a kid you know yeah. and uh, you're trying to find the boundaries and figure out who you are and what's important and if you can control your mind and
1: So the NLP advantage.
4: Mm.
1: Let's talk about that because I've seen, uh, you know, Facebook posts yeah. and things like that. So you, know, you had your yeah. heart heart fueled giants, and yeah. and I've started to see this the NLP advantage. And I've seen some memes and things that you posted. Yeah, uh, tell me how the how that kind of came about, and, and what's that for you?
3: So I've I've always been fascinated by human beings, by human behavior, and trying to understand them and what makes them tick. And I'm always looking for. Um, ways that we can hack ourselves and um so when i studied um with uh, matt browning um nlp mm-hmm. um i had been wanting to do that for a long time and when i went through my training my certification as a coach they definitely of course use a lot of nlp techniques but they didn't call it that yeah you know um yeah it's kind
1: of sort of uh, soaked into a lot of different disciplines that are well it is out there and it's kind of very integrated prevalent itself, or, or migrated into those things. Yeah.
3: Yes, exactly, exactly. I mean, and it's it's everywhere, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, when you talk about flow and um, and how to um, how to really uh, leverage the different stages and so on, uh, or divorce and how to move through it mm-hmm. um, consciously. Uh, we talk about anything, really. I mean, if you. It's it's weird saying NLP. It's like NLP is in all of these things, right? You know, um, but many of these disciplines don't call it NLP. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but to me, it's just about understanding behavior and how to how to be in the driver's seat of that. Right. Yeah. So, um, so, so the NLP advantage came about because I don't just. Fifty percent of my clients are divorced, divorcing clients or some stage of their divorce, Um, and the other fifty percent are um, are women who are in leadership positions or who are either changing their jobs, wanting to go from corporate to their own business um, or vice versa, or they're just having performance issues and they're finding that they're not able to take care of that on their own, and they get to the point, you know, where where they've already made up their mind, they're going to hire you, you know. be, and they're smart, and so that's why people who are really, really smart, we all, I put myself in that lump, but, um, but we think we can do it on our own, or we should be able to do it on our own. And we struggle and struggle and struggle and struggle. And then finally, i.e. the release phase, we go to heck with it. I'm going to do something else. I'll find someone to help me with this. Mm-hmm. And that's when things start to move in the right direction. So I developed the NLP Advantage to sort of help take care of those people. Um, because not everyone comes to you. Not everyone ha- is going through a divorce. Yeah, yeah. But I do the same thing, whether you're going, whether they're going through a divorce or they're they're going through performance issues. Sure, it's the same sort of training.
2: What are what are the main ideas or the main emotions that you consistently see that you find need to be worked on with people that are going through divorces?
3: Confusion and prioritizing.
2: Oh, okay.
3: Yeah. Um, you know, when you're going through something like that, you're sort of taking the whole whole elephant at once and going, you, you don't know where to start. Um, and you do that on an emotional level as well as a logistical level. What do I do first? I don't know what to do first. Where am I going? What can I expect? You know, so the first thing I try to do with them is to um, get them to focus on What's important to them? What are they afraid of? You know? Um, And so we start there, bringing them back into themselves. uh, Back away from the world out there, that scary world. How am I going to live? How am I going to survive? Um, What's going to happen with the kids? Um, How can I have a real conversation with my spouse? We don't communicate well. That sort of thing. So there's a lot of fear. Um, that's probably the primary emotion that describes everything.
2: Yeah, it's 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 funny because you know we often talk about fear being um, the opposite of love. Mm. You know, and, and wouldn't that make sense that people um, fell in love, they got together, and then things are ending, and what do they experience? Fear, you know, the opposite of love.
3: And yeah, and it's a classic, you know, of the unknown, something we're not accustomed to, right? I mean, we've been doing something a certain way for a period of time. And then all of a sudden, that's about to change. And we don't prepare for what that looks like. You know, I mean, when we're when we're little, and we think about being 20, we're sort of prepared we, when when I'm 20, I can be 21, I can go drinking, I can hang out with my friends, I can do this, I can do that, right. But we don't really prepare for beyond getting married you know or um or being with the one person that we think is we're going to be with for indefinitely mm. um yeah so yeah and we don't want to think about that again yeah. we don't want to think about death
2: sure you know? for somebody who maybe isn't familiar with uh, nlp work or somebody who would would never find a coach who doesn't know anything about this for for that person uh what do they need to know in terms of, of the types of, you know, techniques or approaches they would expect to, to go through with somebody who's working through fear with them or helping them work through fear?
3: Well, I don't work with everybody. Um, and so I would work with somebody who, um, who was really wanting to address that so that they can move through their process sanely and on purpose and come out... Um, Having sa- saved their sanity and 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 come out somewhat emotionally ahead of the game, prepared for what's next. So with the people that I do work with, I would get them into their body, first off. Um, we can't think. One of the things that gets hijacked when we're in fear is that we stop being able to think. Our prefrontal cortex kind of shuts down,
1: right? Amygdala
4: hijack. hijack. Amygdala hijack.
3: Exactly. So, um, and so one of the ways that we deal with that is that we try to get them back into their body. Uh, I have different techniques and different ways of doing that, get them back into their heart um, and, um, and get them in touch with, with, their, with, with what they're feeling, even if it is just fear. But they're doing it in company. They're doing it with someone. They can express what they're feeling um, and, um, and work through those things safely. Um, in order to get to the other side, in order to start to piece together what is it that they want out of this. you know, If, it's, if they're going to go through it, what's going to make it worth going through hmm. on the other side? And so I basically really do pre-frame a lot of that. This is a rite of passage, as we mentioned before. What's going to make this worth going through for you, for you, just for you? You know um, what do you want to develop in yourself as you go through this um, and um, and and teaching them how to to not abandon themselves, not to self-abandon, not to b- abandon their bodies. That's really, really important. Oh, I bet um, that's huge. Yeah. It is huge. And, and it, it's, it's really not very esoteric. It's very, it's, it's very real. Yeah. Um, if we're going to make a decision, any decision, um, we need to make it in the present. We need to make it from a place of, as you say, confidre, that, that fidelis, that place mm. of self-trust. What do you know you know? What do you know you know about yourself? Because our our decisions directly affect our experience, our, our experience directly affects our quality of life. So, um, so being able to be in a place and develop a, 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 an awareness of what it takes to make a decision, to be in a, a place of decision making um, is the skill that I want them to develop and to not abandon themselves in the meantime. Does that make sense?
2: Mm-hmm. I think so, yeah. When somebody abandons themselves, what does that look like? What's...
3: Um, well, they tend to, they tend to um, be outwardly focused. Um, they tend to worry about what other people are going to think of them. You know, okay. what, what are my okay. friends going to think? What are my, what's my family going to think? They exhibit certain physical traits, um, coldness in the hands. They tend to shake. Sometimes um, there's just different different ways that you can abandon yourself, and and I believe that um, when we experience or we're in fear of being abandoned, it's because we have a practice of abandoning ourselves. So one of the things I, I uh, that I do with them consistently is to help them again, like I say, just get back into your body, experience what it's like. It's okay. It's 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 not scary. The body needs you, you know.
1: Does it also show up as, um, you know, sleeping too much or too little, overeating, not eating yes. at all, alcohol, yeah, escaping, yeah, you know, escapism, yeah, that kind of thing.
3: Mm-hmm, Absolutely.
1: Because I, when I when you say that, I, I imagine like abandoning the care, the self care.
3: Yeah and self-care means different things to different people. Yeah. You know, and it 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 really does go beyond and more deep than um, you know, giving yourself a bath or getting a massage. Mm-hmm. It really is developing a relationship with yourself and primarily with your body as well. Um, you know, I say that um our body is our first pet. It's the first animal that we are given charge of. And um we are so rarely taught to to take care of it in in a in a loving way. Um, it has its own intelligence, mm. um, it has its own needs, its own drives, it has its own opinions. And um, and we don't really know it very well and we constantly abandon it. And so I find that when we're in fear, um, oftentimes it's our body that is suffering from a vacuum that we leave inside. When our body's in fear, we vacate it, in a sense. And and where does that leave you? <laughs> you know, hmm. Body is mind, mind is body, right? I don't believe in the body-mind connection. I think that is misleading. They're the same, you know?
2: I love that idea of your body being your first pet. Mm-hmm. That is mm, so too. cool. Yeah, that's great. It, it really uh, already has got me thinking differently about myself. Hmm. I love my dog, who's right here in the living room with us. Mm-hmm. I love my cats, mm-hmm. right? Um, but uh, how, how well do I love my own body? You know, and I think I, you know, over the years have learned to take better care of it. But, um, but that's a whole different way of doing it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a
3: whole different way yeah. of thinking of it. You would never do anything that would put your, your pet in fear, if you could help it, right? Um, pain and suffering is just is not okay for your dog and your cat. You would do anything to protect them your loved ones, your pet, something that's vulnerable, something that is strong, something that is beautiful. You would never do anything like that. So why would we do that to our physical entity? You know, we are are an animal, we're a creature yeah so um and it is that is something that i do work with i do i do coach my clients through particularly if they love animals and i, and I typically don't work with anybody who doesn't love animals so <laughs> that's that's that should be that's in, a your, in your qualifying yeah, yeah that should yeah. be in your initial exactly. qualifying questions it's yeah like, it's just a matter of the cats or dogs or horses or whatever but uh mm-hmm. yeah.
2: yeah i'm very skeptical of animal haters right. very very skeptical yeah. right
3: yeah yeah <laughs> Wow! Yeah, wow,
2: that's neat. Yeah, I'm yeah, gonna remember right. that my body's my first pet. The next time I want to eat a piece of chocolate,
3: exactly. No chocolate, no remember. avocado. What is it for yeah, birds and dogs? That's and right. No chocolate, no avocado. Yeah, right. and no, for, uh, for birds, no teflon. No grapes. Teflon pans. Right. You know, that's right. Can kill birds. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
2: So <laughs> I deserve <laughs> better. Yeah. You deserve
3: better. <laughs> Your baby deserves better.
4: <laughs> yeah.
3: What are some of the neat things that you uh, you do, both of you, to uh, to help your clients come out of fear?
2: Oh wow! Well,
1: you know, number one, it's body scan. You know, mm. uh, because it gives information about how they're processing what they're processing. So by encouraging or leading them in a body scan, I can find out immediately in the moment. Um, first of all, how well-constructed their sense of self is, and also uh, any information, any data that comes up from the scan, that's useful. Hmm. right? We know from NLP to to play with submodalities and to play with Hmm. the way they're feeling uh, sensations in their body, that kind of thing. So by guiding them to looking inside and actually observing uh, what's going on in their body from head to toe, it's a good starting point to begin a conversation. I find that that's helpful with people uh, in fear, anxiety, anger, sadness, uh, because it's very useful. And then what they tell me I can use and utilize Mm -hmm. in a, in a strategy to, to start shifting things. You know, of course I'll add language patterns and things like that into it. And then on top of it, what you mentioned, um, having sensory acuity, Expanding my awareness to look at, then what am I? What else am I picking up that they haven't described? Mm-hmm. Like posture, breathing, uh, skin coloration, micro expressions. Mm-hmm. I can also incorporate that into what they're telling me. So that's a good starting point for me. I mean, there's more, but I mean, I think that's a sure. good, good like general thing that I do almost always when someone's going through an emotion and they're and they're working on getting through it
3: having them scan puts them in touch with their body. Yeah. So, yeah. It gets them
1: it
2: redirects to, your attention to
3: yes. Yes.
2: Uh, for me, um, I would suppose that I help clients work through clients or students or, you know, uh, um, I help them work through fear by mostly using um, a way of connecting with them uh, in such a way that um, we can sort of merge and I can, sort sort of lead them towards um, a, a better place of fear. I sort of recognize that their fear is something that, at least in the moment, they feel is necessary. So I just honor, honor that, you know, and uh, use excellent listening and excellent, uh, you know, principles of how to connect with another person. In occupational therapy, we call that therapeutic use of self. Mm-hmm. And so I use therapeutic use of self. Um, I think that when people have fear... Um, there's often an element of um, a feeling of lack of control, mm. so I make it very clear to them that i 've heard them I, I I try to get to the bottom of what it is that they 're afraid of, and sometimes i 'm more curious about the details of their fear than even they are, mm. and they, they might say oh i 'm kind of afraid of afraid of that, oh, okay, tell me more about that. and they tell me more. And I say, okay, so when you say fear, sort of similar to what Carlos is describing and what what you do, you know, like this idea of getting back to the body. Um, so w- w- what is fear like for you? Where in your body do you feel afraid? Well, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, are your hands trembling? Are your hands clammy? Do you feel your heart beating? You know, where in your body do you manifest fear? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's sort of, um, sort of to, to get back to something you said earlier, you know, when um, a person's fearful and, The limbic system is running the show they're not thinking with their prefrontal cortex and so by asking them those kinds of questions they naturally start to think more and they start to use more reason and then uh, they really get to see that um, what they're afraid of matters to me and that is often enough just to know that okay if this guy's gonna stick needles in me you know I'm gonna about to get acupuncture the first time and he is saying all these things that help me feel like i'm in control you know and and i think just you know trying to help them realize that they they have more control you know i think that's that's a lot of it and just being overly heard you know that's sort mm. of what i do yeah.
3: i love that um it is interesting that um that when we're in fear we tend to be afraid to think about our fear um, and so you you being more interested in their fear than they are. It, it is a chance to sort of take a look at that in a safe space and, and perhaps have a conversation with their fear for the first time. Yeah. In a, in a, in and in to get to know it. That's
2: right. Yeah, well said. Yeah. yeah that's true. It's true. Yeah. And
1: also it can imply or presuppose that it's possible to be curious about it because after all you're doing it so it can remind them and give them the you know the impression that yeah well maybe i could be curious about it too hmm. yeah and what would it be like if i were yeah
2: yeah
3: going back to the scientist and the and the lab rat all at the same yeah paper, all right. Yeah. there you go
2: <laughs> I, I think the first time i learned to face fear with wisdom because there's there's the sort of cliche way of face, face your fears yeah. mm-hmm. you know whatever you're afraid of face it you know what i mean and mm-hmm. That may not always be good advice. <laughs> there are times when that's the wrong thing to do, you know. But it's I, I think it's more the idea that you don't you may or may not face an external fear. I don't think that's the point, you know. It really is facing the fear that is in you, not the fear that is outside of you. Like I don't have to go face a bear in order to overcome my fear. I have to face my sensations of fear in order to overcome fear. I think the first time I ever realized that that was possible was doing Vipassana meditation. Yeah. You know, because you're spending so much time observing sensations as they arise on your body that uh, you sort of go, wow, all these years, these sensations and all their little subtleties and all the different locations have been there and I haven't paid attention. Mm -hmm. You know, and and so... um, yeah, I think that was the first time I realized that you could do that. And then as soon as I realized that, I wanted to find out how my patients are experiencing fear. You know, one time a bunch of us were in the car. Oliver was there. Um, was Tina there? Tina might have been there. Yes. I think Tina was there, and you, Carlos, and we were driving, and we were, it was on a long stretch of um desert highway, and there were little little dips. We get that little wee feeling in your mm-hmm. tummy, we think. And then Carlos says, where do you feel that? And he asked everybody in the car where we felt that. And everybody expressed the same feeling, but in kind of a different way. Like, like I, you know, I feel it, you know, in this part of my chest and stomach and somebody else feels it in their shoulders and head. And, and we just found that to be very curious that we all experience this thing differently that um, we assume we all experience it the same way. Do you remember that, Carl? I do. And it's been a fascinating thing
1: that I've um, been just so curious about for years, uh, the sensation of falling. You know that that movement the roller coaster feeling um years ago i was at great america which is in northern california right by Mm -hmm. where you live right Peterlin. and um i will just say that i had taken some psychotropic uh herbs and uh, they were having a profound effect on me at that moment and i went up into this large um structure that was going to drop at a free fall speed I don't remember what it's called, but it's there at Great America. It's a drop zone or something. Yeah, and I went up there, and, and I'm not one of those guys who just you know goes on tons and tons of roller coasters. So for me, it was a little bit scary, but I went up there thinking this is a great opportunity for me to practice uh, letting go of fear. So I went up there basically um, tripping balls. to That's the technical term for it. <laughs> um, and I was about to drop, and I just literally kind of relaxed and centered my own balance in the the axis right from the crown of my head all the way down through my body down through the between my feet and i imagine that going all the way to the ground and i decided that at the moment of greatest acceleration i'm going to feel the feeling of falling so i'm going to take that moment and i'm going to change my awareness so that i don't feel it and so i did that right at that moment i let go the most like more than any other part of the, of the experience. And I timed it perfectly. So that when I was falling, I actually did not feel like I was falling. I didn't feel that sensation. It went away. Because I let go so completely. I let the feeling pass through me. And I didn't hold on to it. I just let it go. And I've since done that at, on roller coasters a few times. And it works. Hmm. If you relax perfectly... At the moment of greatest acceleration, the sensation that you would normally feel from resisting it vanishes. And for a brief moment, you feel this vacuous, kind of empty experience. It's pretty neat.
2: That is awesome. Yeah. What a great story. And so my heart oh, didn't yes. skip a
1: beat. I didn't breathe. I didn't scream. I didn't do anything. I just, I felt totally relaxed. Like I was falling asleep. Yeah.
3: Wow. It really reminds me that um, of, of something that, that it's our resistance that causes us the greatest pain. Right. right? When we just give in to something, um, it, it provides a completely different experience. Um, I remember, I remember when I first went skydiving the first time. Um, I was, you know, you could feel that, like you said, you feel fear and, and that falling, you know, in your in your in your belly. But then being able to move that energy up into my heart, uh-huh. um, it, it just shifted the energy enough to where I wasn't in so much fear the first time, and I was able to just sort of appreciate the experience out of curiosity. Yeah. You know, but... And um, and also, it reminds me of... Um, have you ever read anything by Mark Devine? So, no. So he's a retired U.S. Navy SEAL, and um, he's written a few different books. And one of the things that he talks about is changing, changing emotions. So mm-hmm. um, that... Um, Anger can, in the body, we are interpreting the emotion as anger, that that heat, that that strong feeling, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because of the story that we have around whatever is happening, we're interpreting it as anger. But that is a very similar feeling to determination. So we can actually shift when we start to think, okay, I'm feeling really, really angry about this. What if I how does that feel how does this feel in the body okay i have the feeling i have this yes and does it feel like determination at the same as well yes yes Mm -hmm. and just shifting it from anger to determination almost frees you from the from the the rivets of of being in anger being locked up to determination because determination has a forward movement what am i determined about you know allows you to move forward same with fear and curiosity you can shift fear into excitement actually fear and excitement can feel the same you can right yeah you know um so things like that it's 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 very very cool and i loved learning that from him and i I was talking to uh, a new friend of mine actually who is also a retired u.s u.s navy seal and he is doing a study along with a buddy of his who's a neuroscientist out of Stanford University. And they are going to be focusing just on fear. And with his background, I would think that that would be um, just an incredible study. I, 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 oh, can't yeah. wait. I can't wait to see what they come up with, but how to manipulate fear in a moment when you don't have time. Right. And they want to come up with different, they want to study um, uh, techniques and so on that anybody can use. Well,
1: and the idea of transforming sensations is a big one it's huge uh the ability to do that is just a great boon Uh, i I stubbed my toe really badly the other day at the beach i kicked a rock as i was on a on a hike with a friend and it bruised not on the toe itself but sort of in the metatarsal very painful when i came home i just started breathing my sexual energy into it and it took away the pain so I focused on pleasure and I decided that if I focused on this pleasure for just a few seconds maybe 30 seconds and I really get in touch with that for a moment and then bring my awareness to the area that was feeling the pain I could sort of spread or um, project some of that feeling into that part of my distal Mm -hmm. limb and it worked it totally took away Uh, the pain for the time being, it it provided me great comfort just to do that just for a few seconds, just 30 seconds of, you know, channeling that sexual energy into my foot made my foot
0: feel better.
3: I'm gonna have to try the sexual energy thing. Um, right now, I just use the breath. I find that the, when I, if I'm experiencing pain in a part of my body, mm-hmm. literally, if I just breathe into that part of the body, it's amazing. It will shift the pain, yeah. and the pain will nine times out of ten completely disappear. Yep. You know, I'll get a tiny cramp in my back or something, and I'll just breathe into it because I, I can't, you know, reach around and rub it or something. Yeah. But I'll just, I'll try it without, you know, stretching or some, you know, something else, some other way of addressing it I'll just breathe into it just to practice that totally and it, it it's amazing how it works there's that word again but it is amazing
1: yeah, yeah. it really is it, it it's almost um, like I found for me breathing's like the Advil and then the sexual energy things like the Oxycontin
4: <laughs> <laughs>
1: when I need a really strong dose of something which one's more addictive oh
2: uh, I don't need to <laughs> even wonder about that you know, uh, you mentioned uh, breathing into yep. pain. My my wife has been just doing that for years, and that's usually her go-to move. Like, over the years, she would say, Oh, my calf hurts. Go, do you want me to do something for you?" She goes, No, I'll just breathe into it. She would <laughs> just say that for years, yeah. you know. Oh, my, my, my belly hurts. But it's okay. I'll just breathe into it. And she'd just yeah. would do that for different body parts. Incredible. She, she always, she always yeah. did that over, over the years. Um, uh, you were talking about... Um, like transforming sensations and i and i i think i shared this on another episode but i think it's sort of pertinent to this conversation is uh was when my dad was dying Uh, and i had learned from you you know with nlp work uh that um you know sometimes you can notice that there may be movement or shape qualities to a a a sensation in your body Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, when my dad was dying, I remember I, I, I walked in and I saw him in the hospital room and I felt, you know, some, some, some emotion and hurt. And, and I just, as I was hugging him, I noticed, wait a minute, what is the nature of this sensation that I feel? You know, and it had a shape and it had a movement. And as I was hugging him, I thought, can I make it go the opposite direction? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and it was amazing how... The answer was yes. I can make it go the other direction. Well, can I change its shape? And and that allowed me to have a little bit. I mean, I still experienced the emotion. I didn't lose anything. I actually gained something from the experience because it loosened the grip that that those emotions had on me, and I could sort of relax a little bit more and have a little more flexibility with my ability to respond to the situation. You mm-hmm. know, and uh, that was. Uh, uh certainly helpful in in serious you know serious times so it was neat it was helpful yeah Yeah, that's
1: that method and methods like that are so amazing to me still like why the hell does that work it's amazing yeah yeah Yeah. And, and so powerfully yeah
3: it's kung fu it's internal kung fu yeah it is it really is is. you know you manipulate the elements and manipulate the emotions and manipulate your 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 lab you know your your creatures inside and it's just it's just a zoo and we just get to you know to experiment and see how to do
2: things totally it really is inner alchemy yeah Mm right yeah it is you know um it I mean, is. You know, Carlos, you, you and I both uh, really admire um, Mario Martinez's yeah. work, Dr. Mario Martinez. Yeah, yeah. And I remember hearing him mention that, you know, if you feel a sensation, there has to be, you know, some kind of biochemical reason for it. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you can change the nature of the sensation, then you are literally changing your biochemistry. You yeah. have to because there is a biochemical reason for that right. sensation. So right. uh, it's pretty empowering to realize that. You're creating chemical changes in yourself every time you do these things, yeah. and, that, yeah. and that we are amazing chemists. Our body is an amazing—you know—this pet is an mm-hmm. amazing chemist, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, we could maybe, you know, play with that a little bit more. It's it's useful. Well, Petalyn, this has been a fun conversation.
1: Satch, yeah. really having a good time. Oh, yeah. Is, yeah, definitely. I think we did it it's again. Cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
3: yeah. no, this has been wonderful for me. Thank you so much, both of you. You two are both very inspiring.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you thank so you much. Thank you very much. Yeah. This whole conversation has been inspiring. Oh, yeah, totally, totally,
2: yeah.
1: Piedelin, uh, if if our um, listeners would like to find out more about you, what you do, maybe even get in touch with you, how would they do that?
3: Certainly, they can go to um, either of my websites, heartfueled.com or the NLPadvantage.com. Um, they can certainly reach me by email, uh, okay. which is pitalin at heartfueled.com.
1: Okay, and do you have like a Facebook? Uh, I do.
3: I have um, uh, Pitalin Albert is one Facebook page, and the other one is the uh, NLP Advantage.
1: Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much.
3: Yeah. Thank you. Very, yeah, very much.
1: Right. Lovely having you here.
0: You've been listening to The Authenticity Show with your hosts, Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Very special thanks to our guest, Pedelin Albert. If you'd like to get in touch with Pedelin, her two websites are heartfueled.com and thenlpadvantage.com. And now make sure you put the in front of that. It's the NLP Advantage. This show is produced by Oliver Alteen. That's me. Our theme music is composed by Oliver Alteen, And that's me too. Make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Android Market, Stitcher Radio. Find us on YouTube. Like us on Facebook. If you're so inclined, please leave us a rating and a review. These things actually help. Anyway, thank you for listening and have an authentic day.